BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. The Motor Racing Network presents NASCAR Live. Three cars, nose to tail, Kenseth, Biffle, Earnhardt Jr. Earnhardt Jr. continues to shove Biffle. Here they come off turn four for the final time. It'll be settled among these three drivers coming back to the line. Kenseth now Jr. Dale Earnhardt Jr. appeals to the outside, can't make it happen. Matt Kenseth is going to win the Daytona 500. NASCAR Live is brought to you by Toyota. For the latest Toyota racing information, visit toyotaracing.com. From the MRN Studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Mike Bagley. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of NASCAR Live here on the Motor Racing Network. Happy New Year. Mike Bagley and the rest of the MRN crew here with you as we welcome you in to the first edition of NASCAR Live in 2024. Today will be part two of our look back at our favorite moments from the show during the 2023 season. Still got some matters to tend to. Figured we would button those up on this week's get together. We'll take you back to our visit with Matt Kenseth as he headlined last year's NASCAR Hall of Fame class. Denny Hamlin made his 800th NASCAR start. We'll relive some of the best moments from Denny's career. NASCAR has a rich history of racing on the 4th of July, so we took a journey through the decades of NASCAR competing on Independence Day, and we'll let you hear our conversation with Michael McDowell after his upset win on the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and so much more. Let's start this show by honoring one of the very best in NASCAR's broadcasting ranks. Our Dave Moody is here to take us through the iconic career of Ken Squire and his legacy in NASCAR. Ken Squire was one of NASCAR's original broadcasters and a broadcast pioneer in the formative days of the sport. Born April 10, 1935 in Waterbury, Vermont, he came from a family with radio lineage. His father, Lloyd, founded and operated a station in his hometown. Ken made his on-air debut at the age of 12 and called his first stock car race at 14 from the back of an old logging truck. He built a pair of short tracks, Catamount Stadium and Thunder Road International Speed Bowl, the latter of which continues today as one of the country's most successful short tracks. One of his most influential works was co-founding the Motor Racing Network at the behest of Bill France Sr. in 1970. Squire was the perfect man for the job. Ken was a terrific voice in a mind that is just incredible. So he was the public address announcer for Daytona. He and Bill France Jr. were really hit it off really well, and Fran Sr. too, but especially Bill Jr. So there was never any question about who was going to be the talent for MRN Radio. It was Ken, and uh, that sure was a perfect choice. Once the leadership was set, Ken guided the network through some very humble beginnings. The interesting thing was that for all the hyperbole about uh, what a great deal this was going to be, we had our own office, Roger Bear and I, and our office was out in the hallway on the second floor uh, on top of a Pepsi-Cola cooler with one telephone. That was it. 
and uh, we d divvy it up, Roger and I, and somebody stayed and did the West Coast calls, tried to interest radio stations and what this was all about. Those were good days. The network was the first to provide national broadcast to NASCAR fans across the country, with Ken welcoming listeners to the coverage. This is Ken Squire inviting you to join us for the running of the world's greatest stock car race, the Daytona 500 miler. Squire announced races on MRN for several years before moving to television in the late 1970s. Richard Petty goes back in front. They both spin. They're in the wall. Petty is sliding, slamming into the wall. He's coming down toward the finish line. Will he make it? He's still moving. The car stops 300, 400 feet shy of the finish line. Pearson is still running. Here's Petty trying to fire to come across the line. David Pearson moving down through as they come to the stripe. The winner is car number 21. It's going to be, I believe, Pearson's victory. You'll just have to wait and see. An amazing finish. Richard Petty's car demolished in the front end as well as car number 21. An unbelievable finish, a terrible crash. Both cars in the wall, both drivers kept on going. Richard Petty comes across the line, but in front of him was car number 21. They were both down in the grass on the inside part of the racetrack and will wait for a decision as to the victory in the Daytona 500 this afternoon. It looks like car number 21, David Pearson, has come home victorious. In 1979, Squire was tasked with calling the Daytona 500 flag to flag on national television, a broadcast that ended with his iconic call of what is now referred to simply as the fight between Bobby Allison, Dale Yarborough, and Donnie Allison. Squire called races for CBS and TBS until 1997 before transitioning to Bluff NASCAR studio host through the year 2000. In 2012, NASCAR added a Media Excellence Award to its yearly Hall of Fame honors, naming it in honor of Squire and longtime MRN announcer Barney Hall and making them its first recipients. Squire's legacy has inspired many and set a high standard of broadcast excellence for decades. From shaping NASCAR's national broadcast to the development of Vermont's short track racing scene, Squire's impact on motorsports will be remembered forever. Oh, that voice and those stories will be dearly missed. We're still thinking about Ken to this very day after losing him in 2023. Coming up, we'll hear from Matt Kenton as we caught up with him prior to his induction into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. All drivers dream of having the opportunity to win races at NASCAR's highest level. Some are even lucky enough to win a championship. The best of the best are then honored with the distinction of being inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. A little less than a year ago, that's what happened to former NASCAR Cup Series champion Matt Kenseth. Matt was honored with the distinction and leading up to the ceremony, took the time to chat with us here at MRN about being a NASCAR Hall of Famer and what it meant and means to him. Here's Jason Toy. Matt, congratulations on a on a great career. We call it the Hall of Fame career. We can officially do that coming up this weekend. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It's um goes by in a hurry. I don't know where all the time goes, <laughs> that's for sure. So um yeah, I mean it's a great honor to uh um to get put in the Hall of Fame. So um, kind of looking forward to that. You know, let's talk a little bit about coming in, obviously running in Wisconsin. I knew I know a lot of late model racing up in that region. I got to imagine ASA was a big deal for you guys up there too and, and making that transition. So 
how did that transition come together coming from running the Wisconsin area tracks to, to going into the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, at the time, ASA was very popular. And um, that was honestly when I started racing, that was probably my goal is, is was to always race full time. And and for uh, I mean, NASCAR was a long ways away from Wisconsin. So around there to see ASA racing and, and I was like, well, maybe you go race that and, you know, make a make a living a little bit and um, be able to race in real The NASCAR season is here and Toyota racing is looking for clashers. Did you clash at the Coliseum with your favorite Toyota drivers? Clashing with the HOA who won't let you carve bell number 20 into your lawn. Or maybe your Tyler Reddick shirt clashed with your pants while meeting the in-laws. If you're a clasher, then we want you. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing Inc. Competitive races, so that was kind of kind of my goal. Um, you know, when I started racing with somebody be able to do that without having a, a real job, uh, never really raced a lot of ASA stuff. It just didn't really work out. Never really ran a full season, ran some races here and there. Um, but that was always, um, always a great competitive series. All right, let's talk a little bit about the relationship with you and Robbie Riser. I know you guys were competitors on the track up in Wisconsin, but you guys made a, a great team when you made that transition down south into NASCAR. What about the relationship with Robbie? Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously going to drive for Robbie was, um, you know, my first big break, if you can, you know, categorize the breaks into, into uh, different categories. So, so yeah, going to race for Robbie and and uh, John and his family um, wasn't really something that was expected. We weren't really friends when we raced together. We were more kind of rivals. And uh, he he moved down here with his dad and kind of chased his dream and raced in the Bush Grand National Series. And I was, I was trying to get down here, never really could. And then when, when Robbie got hurt and got out of the seat and moved to the, the crew chief role, um, you know, partway through that next season, the seat opened up, things weren't going very good. They were wrecking a lot of cars. They were kind of struggling. And I seen Robbie a couple times that year. We ran into him at Vegas when I was running a late model race and he was running a Bush race. Um, you know, he's a crew chief. They were racing, racing Bush race out there and then stopped at a shop shop one time, um, you know, to see those guys. So be able to drive, drive his cars for sure was the break that got me into NASCAR racing. And obviously that, that relationship changed the transition into going to drive for Roush too. And it, uh, you know, you drove, you have driven for some great people. You talk about with Robbie and, and the family there, but also for Jack Roush and, and Joe Gibbs racing. What did you learn specifically maybe from each one of those owners and crew chiefs that helped you get to the hall of fame to where you are today oh man i mean there's just there's so many people that's the i'd say that's the toughest part about this last week or two trying to sit down and gather some of my thoughts and you know write a speech i mean how do you get all that in the into a few minutes you know 30 some years of racing so there's just so many people you know that have really helped me and um you know whether it's you know sponsors or crew members or um, you know, teammates or people I raced against or people I worked for or whatever it was. I mean, there's just so many people along the way that it's very difficult to just pick out, you know, a, a, a few, a few people. I mean, so many people, you know, taught you different, you know, different lessons, but, um, you know, I, I'd say Robbie, you know, probably more, um, you know, perseverance and hard work, never giving up. I mean, we were on the ropes. I shouldn't say we, I didn't have any, any, you know, vested interest financially, but it was my only shot really at NASCAR, but, you know, him and his dad are on a, on a, and his family on the ropes pretty hard, you know, trying to find a sponsor and 
started the year in 98 going to Daytona really with no sponsor in a car we thought um, um, we had one and didn't and uh, went and raced Daytona on a one race sponsor got it while we were down there and then went to Rockingham and won the race the next week our first race together and um, and we were able to sign a sponsor and get us through that season won some races that year finished I think second or third in points and um, sort of our breakout year you know together so um, so I'd say you know hard work um, you know, Robbie's always, uh, always was the first one at the shop and the last one to leave. You know, he unlocked the doors and he locked the doors. You weren't going to beat him in the shop no matter how early you got there. Um, I remember when I wanted to start working out with him and working out together and um, just trying to get in better shape for racing and doing all that stuff. And it's like, well, let's go before work. <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but something ridiculous. Like, okay, well, pick me up at 445. You know, <laughs> give us an hour to get back here and uh, get, get ready for work so I can beat everybody here or whatever. So, um, yeah, I'd say I'd say that for him, you know, Jack, you know, Jack's interesting because he's, uh, you know, it's interesting because like Jack and and Coach Gibbs, for instance, are are, are pretty much opposites, you know, and uh, they were they were both very successful. And that's kind of neat thing, too, about Jason and Robbie. They were they were kind of opposites and, and I was able to have a pretty good amount of success with both of them. So, um, you know, Jack, engineer, racer, um, doesn't really care about all the the rest of the stuff you know he's he's never you know i mean shoot i think it took him 25 years of owning cars until he'd buy a motorhome you know he's gonna go stay at the holiday express or something instead so uh just all about you know racing and racing cars and competition and trying to beat everybody and trying to be smarter than everybody and doing all that kind of stuff and didn't really care about the rest of the stuff it was just kind of a necessary evil that came with came with it you know to try to try to make it happen whether it was you know dealing with sponsors or some of the stuff with people or or, or what have you so uh, that's the thing about jack just pure racer you know just 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 a pure racer where you know coach got into racing because he's very competitive obviously uh, he's a great he's a great coach he's a great motivator leader um you know all that kind of stuff so he's he's also works um incredibly hard first one typically there last one kind of lead type of guy to always travel and talking to sponsors he's just uh um, so great on, on um, you know, sales and um, networking with people and making everybody feel important, treating everybody like family, like all that kind of stuff is what makes him so successful, you know, is by getting all the right people underneath them because he has a way of making people want to work for him and, and, and getting the best out of all those people. You know, and you look at all the accolades that you've had, all the big race wins, uh, the championships and everything, you know, Daytona 500 a couple of times. And I know you've been asked this before, but I know the folks would love to know about this. What's one of those races that is the most special to you? One of those trophies that you have on that on that trophy case in that in your man cave garage that you got that is the most special to you? Oh, here I thought you were going to ask which one is the most um, you know which one is do I have the most angst over over letting get away? They <laughs> <laughs> still have nightmares about. Um, now we talk about the ones you've got. How about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's hard to say. You know, I never. You know, there wasn't a race that 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 we won that I didn't enjoy winning. So, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I mean, the first time you do anything, you know, I mean, at the very most, um, you know, meaningful, fun, um, impactful race we ever won was that that first race at Rockingham together with the Risers. You know, we won that that Bush race in 1998. It was the second race of the year. Um, we weren't expected to win. We didn't really have a sponsor in the car. We're, we're somewhat, you know, becoming affiliated with Roush at that time, but we were still, you know, running Chevys. It was still the Riser family stuff. Uh, uh, we're still, like I said, struggling to get a sponsor. Um, ran okay at the end of 97. We started running better, but uh, we never thought we were going to go be, be, win the race. You know, we had to beat 
you know, Mark Martin and Jeff Burton and Dale Jarrett. And uh, we passed Tony Stewart in the last corner of the last lap driving Joe Gibbs racing yep. equipment. Um, it was just uh, it was just an unbelievable day. You know, I didn't do everything right and don't really know what I'm doing. I got into him one time with four or five laps to go underneath them and thought we lost it. And, um, you know, honestly, coming to the white, it didn't look like we had a chance either. It was a slower car. Tony kind of uses a pick and I had to get back behind him and uh, um, just got that uh, that magic run at Rockingham. and. I'm sure you've seen races at Rockingham a lot. When you grab that line down in three and four, it was like two tenths of a second. You know, if you grab it with the left sides, you know, you go in kind of slow. And as soon as it grabbed it, you could mm-hmm. you know, back then when the cars were a little slower. So if you could just pin the gas, you know, and if you missed it, the whole car would just kind of come out of the track. And I, would, I don't want to say Tony missed it, but he didn't grab it. And he was probably a foot high, foot and a half high. And for some reason, my left side grabbed it perfect. And I was able to just stand in the gas and get right up to him. And um, I still don't think we touched him. I mean, if you did, you could have you know flicked it with a finger um but it moved him offline just enough where we got our you know we had to get out of gas a little bit and we didn't and and uh passing the finish so that was um that was probably one of the coolest races ever that i that i drove that we won um and besides just being fun it was obviously very impactful we got a sponsor for the rest of the year and it kind of kept uh kept all of our careers uh careers going that's jason toy matt kenseth a little under a year ago getting ready to go into the nascar hall of fame coming up we'll look back at some of the most memorable moments of denny hamlin's nascar career From fueling NASCAR champions on the track for over 20 years to innovating 94 octane, the highest octane on the market. Performance is what Sunoco does. All Sunoco fuel at the pump meets the same top tier standards as the fuel used in NASCAR. Here for Ryan Blaney, four tires with Sunoco fuel. From the track to your tank, you can trust Sunoco to help your vehicle perform at its peak. From outdoor care to home and auto repair, do it with Craftsman. Find the tools, equipment, and storage you need at your local Lowe's, Ace Hardware, or Craftsman.com. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. The past season, Denny Hamlin made his 800th NASCAR start across the sports three national series. He did so at his home track in Richmond. And over the years, Denny has put together quite the resume in honor of this accomplishment. Our Jason Toy is here to take us through the biggest moments of Denny Hamlin's NASCAR career. When Denny Hamlin made his NASCAR debut in 2004, he did so in an impressive fashion at Indianapolis Raceway Park. Denny Hamlin in his Truck Series debut rounds out the top 10. Nearly 20 years later after his first NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series start, the 42-year-old has racked up numerous accolades throughout his career. Early on, he made it evident he was going to be a force to reckon with. I distinctly remember Phoenix in November of 05, he won the pole position. And a lot of people were like, this this Hamlin guy, he he's for real. But a, a pole in a part-time season just getting going? I ran into him in a, in a chain restaurant in Phoenix after qualifying later that night and congratulated him. We, we kind of shared a laugh or two and and i told him i said denny your your life's about to change you're not going to be able to come and just hang out and eat at these chain restaurants uh at, at the the race sites and uh he didn't think that was something that would ever be a problem for him 
But as it turns out, just a, a couple of months later in Daytona, he wins the clash at the World Center of Racing. And we laughed a little bit more about that. And he said, nah, I kind of get an idea what you were talking about. Hamlin never looked back. His rookie season left many people in awe. And it was mainly because of his dominant performances at the Tricky Triangle. It has been Denny Hamlin Day all day. The rookie has shown the veterans how to get it done here at Pocono. Denny Hamlin leads Kurt Busch by an easy eight car length. Hamlin leaves the field, headed toward the front Earlier today, he was called a top-tier driver by one of the other crew chiefs. And he's a rookie in his second appearance at Pocono Raceway. He's won his second race today, taking the Pennsylvania 500. You know, when I think of Denny Hamlin's career, you have to go all the way back to the year that he ran the Cup Series full-time in 2006. There was a lot that was being made of what this kid could be, but it was in Pocono that we realized what this kid was. To win at Pocono in his Rookie of the Year season, beating on that day for his first career win, Kurt Busch and Tony Stewart, I think we recognized very quickly that this was going to be somebody that was going to be a star in our sport and then to go six races later back at Pocono yet again and the same driver Denny Hamlin was running up front and dominating all of this again in his very first year and I think then we realized very quickly that Denny Hamlin was going to be special in NASCAR and he's certainly proven to be that. That success has continued throughout his career. When we discuss crown jewel events such as the Daytona 500, Hamlin's name is atop the list. Checkered flag waving at the start-finish line. Who will get there first? It's Truex on the inside, Hamlin on the outside, and too close to call. Denny Hamlin showing up as the race winner by one one-hundredth of a second. Denny Hamlin has won the 58th running of the Daytona 500. Hamlin is one of six drivers to have taken the checkered flag in the Great American Race three times or more. When you think of Daytona, there's a lot that comes to mind. Obviously, the Petties, the Allisons, the Pearsons of the world. But then there's Denny Hamlin, a three-time winner at Daytona. But Denny, I think when it comes to Daytona, is more than that. He was a driver that any time we showed up at Daytona to call a race and Denny was in the field, you knew he was going to run up front. You knew he was going to lead a ton of laps. You knew he was going to be a difficult car to pass. And obviously his win record there shows that. As a three-time winner of the Daytona 500, Denny Hamlin has etched his name in history, and that's something that he can always look back on and be proud of. When you ponder at some of Hamlin's astonishing moments throughout his career, one that stands out to many is what he pulled off in 2007. During the AT&T 250, the driver was slated to run Xfinity at the Milwaukee Mile, but his ride from Sonoma, where the Cup Series was competing that weekend, got held up. It was time to start the race. Driver introductions taking place, and, and Hamlin's not there, so Almirola uh, is going to get tabbed to, to drive the car. If memory serves, they were having a hard time finding a place to land the helicopter that Denny was on uh, and was circling overhead, and they had to find an alternate place to land, so Almirola had to go ahead and start the race. And by rule, the driver who starts the race and runs the first lap is going to be the driver of record. Well, Hamlin finally gets landed in the helicopter, rushes over to the racetrack, and 
as soon as they had the opportunity at one of the caution flags, Almirola came to pit road and got out of the car, and Denny Hamlin got in. Almirola was doing a great job. He was leading the race. Denny gets in, and of course, they lose tons of track position with the driver change. But Hamlin rallies back and, and beats the field, and Denny Hamlin takes the checkered flag first in the race. But Eric Almirola gets credit for the win since he was the driver of record uh, at Milwaukee. So to see Denny come in late go way behind the field on a short track, basically a mile, a very flat, very difficult racetrack, and drive his way through the field to get to the checkered flag first. That was something pretty special as well. But Hamlin did a masterful job that day coming from the back of the field to win that race. On to the recent feat in today's current NASCAR playoff format. The most efficient way to advance to the next round is by winning. And when Denny Hamlin had his back against the wall in 2019, he did exactly that in one of the more clutch performances of his entire Cup Series career. Two-car breakaway up at the front. It is Denny Hamlin just in front of Kyle Busch. Busch just throws his Toyota into the corner, trying to make up the ground. But it's Denny Hamlin who leads the charge down the back straightaway. Doing everything he needs to do. Denny Hamlin at the front of the field, free and clear of traffic and a three-car length lead into turn three. And Denny Hamlin is also now headed to Homestead Miami Speedway. Across the line goes Denny Hamlin, and for the sixth time this season, he is going to victory lane. Outings like that is what people have respected most about Hamlin throughout his stint in NASCAR. When you show up at a racetrack and you know you've got a race against Denny Hamlin, you know that you're going to be in for a fight because Denny is one of those drivers. Once he sits behind the wheel, puts the helmet on, he's tenacious, he's aggressive, he's passionate, he's there to win, he isn't going to cut you any slack, and if he's got an opportunity to drive by you, he's going to do it in a heartbeat, and then he's going to drive away from you, and then he's going to go to victory lane, and he's done that many, many times over the course of his career. The driver has won at virtually every track we go to, and with 67 wins combined across the National Series, is destined for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. As Hamlin makes his 800th NASCAR start at Richmond this weekend, you can sum up his career with one phrase. He's a winner. As we continue our NASCAR Live Best of 2023, we'll discuss the history of NASCAR racing on the 4th of July. That and more as we continue on this Tuesday night. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is NASCAR Live. Now back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. NASCAR has a rich history of displaying patriotism. For the longest time, people associate the 4th of July with Daytona International Speedway because around that time, when we would make our second visit to the two-and-a-half-mile oval, it would be time to go racing, and it was all about the red, white, and blue, and NASCAR. Well, over time, that tradition has changed, and here to remind us all of the NASCAR history that has been made on the day of our nation's birthday is our Susie Armstrong. Cookouts, fireworks, and the Firecracker 400. For decades, that was Independence Day in the world of NASCAR. It could be a photo finish as they come across the line. Pearson is in front. Petty goes to the outside. David Pearson has won it. David Pearson has won by maybe three feet. 
Petty came up the outside. He ran out of room, and Pearson has won this race as he came across the line at over 130 miles an hour by just about three feet. Just like David Pearson did at Daytona in 1972, NASCAR delivered fantastic races on the 4th of July for years. The sport's tradition of racing on the holiday began in 1959, where the event was originally only 250 miles, but would expand to 400 in 1963. Of course, a lot has changed since then, but still many correlate the holiday with racing at Daytona, including NASCAR Cup Series regular A.J. Allmendinger. I feel like it's synonymous with NASCAR. You know, for so many years, we did it at Daytona, and you just knew 4th of July weekend, that's where you were going to be, and we've moved it around now. It was at Road America, now being here in Chicago. 4th of July is it's American, right? Like, it's it's like, that's what it is. And I don't know, NASCAR racing, it's American. This is what we do. So I don't know. Like, I just feel like for all of us, I mean, we're just so used to it and, and we have a lot of fun with it. Almondinger is right. A lot of fun has been had on the holiday when it comes to on-track action. One of the most iconic 4th of July races transpired in 1984 when a special guest made history. Mr. President, why don't we go ahead? We're not going to hold up any longer. Let's start the engine, sir. All right. Gentlemen, start your engines. President Ronald Reagan gave the command from the sky in Air Force One. Once he landed, he became the first president to attend a NASCAR event. As the day came to an end, President Reagan wasn't the only one who made history. Yarbrough down low, Petty's up the banking, Yarbrough pulls up in front of him, Petty right up on his bumper, points his nose down inside, they race back to the checkers, the lap car head, Petty right down to the apron, they're side by side. Richard drafts down to the bottom of the racetrack, they are door to door in the dogleg, they touch, coming to the trial, down to the line, it is, I can't call that one, it is so close, Petty almost lost it as they tagged again as they crossed the start finish line, they take the caution, it's Richard Petty by a foot, Petty wins his 200th career NASCAR victory as he and Cale Yarborough come together, coming down into the trioval. The King put on a show as he won not only his 200th race, but what would be the final victory of his storied career. This was just one of many memorable moments that have transpired on our nation's birth date. But just like many things, the sport made a change. Up until 1988, the Firecracker 400 ran on Independence Day, and starting that year would be moved to the first weekend of July. Fast forward nearly a decade following the 1997 season, the race would no longer run in the morning. It would remain in Daytona, but now occur at night under the lights. Since the date change, we've only witnessed six National Series events on the actual 4th of July, three Xfinity and three Cup. One that stands out to many is the 2009 Coke Zero 400. The conclusion of that event delivered one exciting finish. Tony Stewart all over the back end of Kyle Busch, literally pushing him off turn number four. Jimmy Johnson is there as well. Top three, nose to tail, Denny Hamlin goes four. Tony looks to make the move. He swings to the high side. Kyle blocks. Tony gets into Kyle. He hits the wall. Tony Stewart is going to win the Coke Zero 400. And several more cars spin at the start-finish line. A spectacular move, but you knew it was going to be something like that. NASCAR would continue to celebrate 4th of July weekend in Daytona up until 2020. Even though the race wasn't run on the 4th, 
the Indianapolis Road Course would host the sport for that date for one season. The next year on Independence Day, the Cup Series made its return to a track for the first time since 1956. It's been 23,702 days since the NASCAR Cup Series last race here in Wisconsin at Road America, and that's about to change. Aaron Jones, running back of the Green Bay Packers, puts the green flag in the air, and we're racing at Road America. With a beautiful forecast in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, NASCAR's most popular driver took home the checkers. The fans in turn 13 are loving it. Chase Elliott coming out of the final corner, making his way down into turn number 14. All alone, nobody around him. Chase Elliott looking to go back into the history books. The new king of road course racing in NASCAR up the hill for the final time. A win at the historic Road America added to the resume of Chase Elliott up the hill. Checkered flag is out. Everybody is on their feet and Chase Elliott has won here this afternoon in Wisconsin, his seventh road course win, 13th on his career and second of 2021. Chase Elliott has done it again. NASCAR is still trying to figure out what the 4th of July staple should be on the schedule. Three of the last four weekends have been at different locations. Team Penske's Austin Cindric loves the idea of the event being symbolic, but believes there has to be consistency with the schedule. I think when it comes to the 4th of July, I think everyone thinks as NASCAR is a very American sport. You know, we just took a NASCAR to Le Mans and everyone thought it was the most American thing on the planet. You know, listen to a V8 and going around a racetrack and, you know, being a big heavy car. And that's what we get to experience every weekend. So from a from a global perspective, yeah, I think it's important for us to be very well represented on July 4th. As far as my, my opinion, I, I think it is a big enough holiday throughout the country that, you know, you probably should should have a you know normal event planned for for that it should be a predictable race year to year that's on July 4th I, I think that's fair because it is a you know a time that everyone has off and can go plan trips and do whatever they want with their families including come to a NASCAR race so I think it should be probably a, a more traditionally scheduled event you know looking into the future if someone was to ask me that'd be my opinion even though racing on our nation's birthday has been a rarity of late over the years nascar's rich history has provided us no shortage of fireworks during the fourth of july weekend thank you Susie. coming up we'll hear our conversation with michael mcdowell after he shocked the nascar cup series garage by claiming the checkered flag on the indianapolis motor speedway road course Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. Michael McDowell and Front Row Motorsports had a stellar 2023 season. At the end of 22, the entire 34 team, except for Michael and the PR guy, were all off to new ventures and they had to be replaced. That didn't stop Michael and first-time crew chief Travis Peterson from making the NASCAR playoffs. Not only were they in the top 16 throughout the duration of the regular season, they punched their ticket to the postseason by taking the entire Cup Series garage to school at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road 
course. Michael joined our Jason Toy to discuss how he was able to pull off that upset win. So career win number two, you get the first win at probably one of the biggest stages in NASCAR at the at the Cup Series and the Daytona 500. You fast forward to this past weekend, one of the, the most iconic tracks. I you know folks are this is radio, so we're let me give a description here. Behind you, over your left shoulder, is the trophy from the Brickyard. A nice little brick right there for the Verizon yeah. 200 win. How iconic is it to pick up your second win at a place like Indianapolis? Oh, I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's just, yeah, you can't, you can't even imagine that that would be how it would play out, right? I mean, there's just, um, you never know in the Cup Series when, when you're going to hit on something and have a car that's capable of winning. I mean, but, you know, at the same time, we probably... If you said, hey, what are the five races that are most likely for you to win? I mean, we would say super speedways and road courses. Those are probably our best chance. So it's it's pretty special. I mean, it's special to to be a Daytona 500 winner and now win at Brickyard is, is crazy. And, you know, it's just, it's different, right? I think it's hard to describe for a lot of people is every race win is special, but there's more to just winning Daytona and just winning Indy. It's just everything that goes around it with the history of the facility and the sport and victory lane and kissing the bricks or, or for the Indy 500, drinking the milk or the trophy or just what it all means, right? And so this is special because of what that victory celebration's like, you know, taking your car up the elevator to victory circle there, taking your team and your family down to kiss the bricks. And it doesn't get much cooler than, than winning at Daytona and winning at Indy. Well, I'm going to talk about your crew chief right now. And the big thing yeah. too, you know, you got the big win with Drew, with Drew, you had Blake with you and you guys had a series of top 10 finishes and some good runs there, but you also had an opportunity to uh, pick up with the new car and that was a big thing for you we always talk about the great equalizer with that yeah and then blake moves on you bring in travis and it doesn't seem like you guys have skipped a beat you guys are continually having great runs week in and week out yeah it's been good you know i think that the next gen car was a big step forward for us at front row no doubt about it that that helped us get to that next level kind of a little bit level playing field and same parts and pieces and we weren't running you know, I'm not going to say our cars were old prior to that, but we just weren't going to catch up to the big teams because even though we were developing, they were developing faster. I mean, we were just never going to close that gap. And so when the next gen car came, it was like, okay, we're all the same and we have a window of opportunity before these guys figure every small little detail out where we got to, you got to hit some home runs. And so, you know, last year I felt like we, we put together a lot of great finishes and, you know, we had... I think we had 12 top 10s, which was really strong for us. And um, and then obviously running that well makes makes it tough because those people are attractive. And yeah, so it wasn't just Blake. I mean, Blake was a you know a tremendous asset, and obviously he had a great opportunity. And I mean, who who wouldn't uh, want to mm-hmm. go to Hendrick and and do uh, what he's getting to do? So nobody blamed him here. We all understood that it's you know, great opportunity for him and his family. And if it was just him, we'd have been okay. But it wasn't just him. We lost our engineer, our lead at race engineer, our second engineer, front end mechanic, underneath guy, interior guy, truck driver. You go down the list, we lost everybody. And so that was a tough off season. Finding Travis was a, you know, great home run for us. But there's so many other spots that we filled in that we did really well in. Um, and so 
that it appears that we haven't missed a beat and I could see that from a performance standpoint. I just want to one year keep all my guys and and see what we can do year two, right? Like you take this group right now and you give us another full year together and we're going to be really good, really good. And, and that's not just Travis, that's, that's from the top down. And so I'm excited about where we can go and, and what we can do. And I'm thankful that we got great people and it's tough. You know, you just don't know how chemistry is going to go. You don't know how it's all going to come together. Travis has done a great job. I knew he would though. The reason that he's here is because I went and got him and he's the guy I wanted. And it wasn't like, uh, well, let's take a chance. And it wasn't taking a chance to me. I knew what I needed and I knew what I wanted and he was it. All the other pieces that came together collectively was amazing because you don't always get that chemistry that we have as a group so it's it's been good all right man congratulations again big win looking forward to the playoffs all the best to you and the family and the entire team there at front row big win for you guys thank you thanks for having me on appreciate it michael surprised us with the win at indy this past season and maybe we'll see another as the track makes the move back to the oval next season coming up we'll relive some of nascar's greatest races at talladega super speedway This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. In honor of NASCAR's 75-year anniversary, the sport made a list of NASCAR's 75 greatest races. One track that had quite a few on that list was Talladega Super Speedway in Alabama. Here to take us through each of those iconic events is our Susie Armstrong. During NASCAR's 75-year existence, Talladega Super Speedway has provided stock car fans with thrilling, heart-pounding racing. When the sport compiled the list of the 75 greatest races, five events from the 2.66-mile trioval made the cut, each having its own importance. The first of the contingent requires us to go back in time to July 29, 1984, where two future legends battled it out on the last lap. Labonte cut out of the draft. He's now battling with Buddy Baker side by side. Earnhardt takes this to an advantage. He pulls away by three car lengths. But Labonte down on the bottom of the racetrack fends off the challenge of Buddy Baker. But as they exit turn number four, it is Earnhardt on the point. Earnhardt has a 10 car length advantage as they come to the line. Will he be able to hang up there? He will. He comes into the dogleg. Earnhardt is going to win the Talladega 500. The Talladega 500 had an astounding 68 lead changes. The two men spearheading the late race drama, Terry Labonte and Dale Earnhardt, would provide fans with a handful of dramatic last lap finishes over their time at the sport's highest level. Their battles at Bristol are well documented, but that summer afternoon in 1984 just happened to be one of their first iconic duels. The second race named to this list was one that would have so much meaning for Dale Earnhardt fans everywhere. Here come the leaders off the corner. It's going to be a three-way battle for the win. They'll come by the Ted Musgrave car with Earnhardt leading. Here they come into the trioval. Kenny Wallace, one final shot at Dale Earnhardt. Behind him, the whole pack steaming for the finish line. Dale Earnhardt wins it. Earnhardt wins the Winston 500. Just as he did 75 times prior, on October 15th, 2000, Earnhardt electrified the grandstands with his performance, earning his 76th and final career win, a feat that only the Intimidator and seven other drivers have accomplished 
in NASCAR's Premier Series. Another event that left fans in awe took place not so long ago and was the coming out party for a future superstar. Carl Edwards has the lead, though. He's not been in the picture all afternoon. Suddenly he's in the lead, but under attack, contact here in the trioval. Edwards goes up in the air. Brad Keselowski comes by. He'll score the win in the Aaron's 499. Keselowski pulled out of line with two to go, battling Carl Edwards. The duo surged to the front providing the sport with not only an exciting ending to the Aaron's 499, but an upset for the agents. In what was a scary crash, Edwards exited his car under his own power and ran the last few hundred feet to the finish line. For Keselowski, in just his fifth career Cup Series start and first for owner James Finch, the Michigan native claimed the checkers as one of the most unlikely of winners in NASCAR history. Man, I feel bad for Carl and hope everybody's okay out there, but... Uh... Man, this is NASCAR racing, and this is cool. Fast forward to October 4th, 2021. The fourth race named to this list happened to be one filled with highs and lows. The event had weather looming all day, but for a while, this Alabama native took everyone's attention off the elements as he fought for the top spot. Bubba Wallace to the lead at Talladega. Shortly after surging to the front, the elements finally emerged over the super speedway, forcing NASCAR to call the race. Even though it was shortened due to weather, the action on the track was memorable, especially those rooting for Bubba Wallace. NASCAR has just announced it is official here at Talladega, and Bubba Wallace has been deemed the winner of the Yellowwood 500 at Talladega. Wallace's triumph that day at the Super Speedway marked just the second time in NASCAR history that an African-American would win in NASCAR's highest level of competition. The final race named to this list happened nearly one year ago. With a trip to the round of eight in the NASCAR playoffs on the line, the intensity revved up late in the 2022 Yellowwood 500. Here comes Elliott on the outside. It's Ford versus Chevrolet for the win at Talladega. Here comes Chase Elliott. He's going to lead him through the trioval. Can he lead him all the way to the checkered flag? Ryan Blaney is there. He'll look to the outside. He won't get there. And Chase Elliott has won at Talladega. Elliott's late race move was just enough to hold off Ryan Blaney who narrowly finished second in one of the most intense finishes in NASCAR history. These five events that transpired at Talladega Super Speedway all play an important part in NASCAR's history. They are the few that have been honored with the distinction of being some of the sport's greatest 75 races. As our Barney Hall used to say, they don't race them anywhere in the world like they race them at Talladega. Thank you, Susie. Coming up, we'll close out the show by flashing back to Michael McDowell's first NASCAR Cup Series win in 2021 as he claimed the checkered flag in the great American race. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. We're about to head for the exits on this week's NASCAR Live. Earlier, we heard from Michael McDowell as he discussed his upset win at Indianapolis earlier this year. That wasn't the first time Michael McDowell shocked the sport. Let's go back to 2021 as Michael was at the right place at the right time during the closing laps of the Daytona 500. Austin Dillon dies to the bottom of the racetrack. Here's Keselowski trying to make the move on Logano. Logano throws the block. Logano leads down the back straightaway. Keselowski's in line. Now he turns him. Boot team Penske cars crash. Keselowski is up in a ball of flame up into the outside wall. He'll take Kyle Busch with him. Everybody now racing off the corner in a horrific crash on the final lap of the Daytona. 
Daytona 500. Caution is on the speedway. Caution is on the speedway. We'll wait and see who was the race leader when the caution flag came out. Keep in mind, they have it frozen. As soon as the caution flag comes out, scoring freezes. NASCAR race control directly to our left here in the broadcast booth now begins to huddle around to figure out who the winner of the Daytona 500 is. We'll wait and see officially who it is. Mike Bagley, but a horrific crash in turn three. Brad Keselowski has just climbed from his race car. Holy cow what a ride he just took he climbed out of the car he immediately took off his gloves and just chucked them right at the car he is now he takes his helmet and he throws his helmet at the race car now the attention turns to kyle bush his car is sitting wrong way facing the wrong direction the safety crews are on the scene tending to him i see the kyle bush car i see the brad keselowski car safety crews on the scene for both cars and both drivers over here in turns three and four all right mike stay there for just a bit. Kyle, stay put for just a bit. Michael McDowell was the driver that came across the line, and we did see the yellow flag and the checkered flag flying, and we are now getting word from NASCAR. The winner of the 63rd running of the Daytona 500 is indeed Michael McDowell. They can go ahead and celebrate now. It will be a victory by mere inches. McDowell wins the Daytona 500. What a moment that was for Michael McDowell and everyone at Front Row Motorsports. Our thanks to Matt Kenseth and Michael McDowell for providing us time. Our thanks to Jason Toy and Susie Armstrong for their hard work. And for the rest of the MRN crew, I'm Mike Bagley. We thank you for joining us as well. Happy New Year again, folks, and we'll talk to you next week right here on NASCAR Live. Until then, so long, everybody. NASCAR Live is a production of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and was brought to you by Toyota. For the latest Toyota racing information, visit toyotaracing.com. Today's broadcast was produced by Trey Downey, Pat Jaggers, and Julian Council. The executive producer for MRN is Ryan Horn. Remember to visit MRN.com for all of the latest news and information. NASCAR Live is produced under an exclusive license with NASCAR. Any use of the accounts and descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.